0: So I've been in HR organizations and HR teams that they don't do org design. It is still very reactive, the way they look at capabilities and competencies. So I don't think, you know, for any talent people who are listening to this, you shouldn't have to limit yourself because it didn't come as a subscription or it's not part of the syllabus that you've learned.
1: Welcome back to episode five of Talent Surgery i'm steve jacobs and with my co-host yasser ahmed hi everyone today we are joined by a personal favorite of mine um, the lovely sophie Thien. sophie welcome talent surgery it's great to have you on the show
0: well thanks for having me i'm excited to um talk about what we need to talk about today
1: yeah tell us tell us a bit about yourself
0: yeah um well where do i even start um i've moved around the place for so many times now Um, I guess in a nutshell, I am a talent HR professional turned um, founder, leadership coach at the moment, which I truly, truly enjoy, to be perfectly honest with you. I find a lot of joy doing that. Um, And recently published a book about um, entrepreneurs, culture and startups, and pretty much spent my first five years of my career in IBM, corporate world, and then kind of got propelled into the startup world and never really looked back since. So it's been about, what, eight to nine years now
2: you've had uh, an amazing career i was kind of stalking your linkedin earlier and i even in the book it lo- sounds amazing what the and
0: what's the name of the book for everyone um it's the soul of startups the soul untold of start-up. stories of how founders affect culture
1: and where can everyone find it
0: um you can find it on the amazon um it's in barnes and nobles as well mostly in america but mostly you can really find it in amazon if not on my website sophie we'll
2: put a picture of the book here and then we'll put a link in the description. So um, maybe I'll start off with the staple question we ask every guest uh, and it's um, about productivity. So what is your productivity hack uh, that you use the most that gets you um, further in your day-to-day?
0: You mean gets me going and gets yeah. me, yeah. you know, not in a reactive mode. Makes um, you feel productive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so I do I do have a bit of a ritual, um, although I kind of like, you know, I, I have a ritual where I kind of put down what I need to do on a day-to-day basis, what I absolutely need to achieve. But then at the same time, I tend to not really go through it. But there is like this sandwich where at the start of the day, I would absolutely sit down for at least 10 minutes to reset and do my goal setting. So what do I really want to achieve on that day? And then I close off the day by like, prepping what I need to do tomorrow so it could be as simple as just closing off the day before I slam my laptop shut to go all right, I'm going out tomorrow because I need to um you know meet a couple of people do I pack my bag do I put my jacket on the side just so for me it's kind of like that sandwich that really gets me going to mm. make sure that I've done what I need to do today and not feel bad for missing some of yeah. the important things out
2: and that's at the end of the day
0: yeah and the end of the day and I start my day with a bit of goal setting while I walk my dog
2: it's really interesting I, I just posted about this on LinkedIn about morning routines and um what just out of curiosity what time do you typically wake up in the morning
0: uh, so i'm at actually an early bird so seven okay. thirty is when my alarm goes off just so that i've got like a half an hour to 45 minutes to walk my dog with my coffee and yeah. if she's taking a lot longer than i would like i'll usually sit out in the cold and kind of like do my goal setting on my phone
1: amazing 7 so 30, yeah. yeah as most people know i get up at five uh, <laughs> I, 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 <laughs> I haven't stopped
2: Recently, (laughs) I feel like I'm not so obsessed about waking up early or setting routines or having rituals in the morning. I think for me, I just want to be fully awake. Mm. That's like my number one priority when I wake up in the morning. Am I actually awake or am I just... Because I roll out of bed just straight into the meetings. Mm. Obviously, do my normal breakfast. You know, Get dressed, right? Yeah, yeah, of course. Sometimes, you know, just straight into a meeting on audio. But um, generally speaking... I, I was reading up on, like, different ways people set up their day for success. And one of them ones was, it was, like, wake up in the morning, read the news – set goals for the day but what was interesting i never really heard s- close the end of the day which mm. is really interesting i yes, like that
0: Yeah, i'm a bookended person so yeah. i'm really structured that way um i i tend to get a little bit more anxious if i feel like i haven't kind of ticked off all the boxes yeah. so over the years i've learned not to feel guilty about not achieving everything i set out to do and so i kind of do an end of day closing ritual just so that i feel a little bit better about mm-hmm. myself but also like i said it's A fairly lighthearted gesture in the sense that it could be as easy as me packing my bag for tomorrow.
1: So that's interesting because that sounds very much like self-urgency. Yeah. So how would you manage then when you're working in a team with other people who don't have that same sense of urgency as you?
0: Yeah, that's interesting. Um, So in a team setting, I am a big fan of stand-ups and stand-downs. I actually prefer stand downs more than stand ups only because people... Exactly like what you were saying earlier. Um, people start their day in different versions and they're a different pace. Some are nine thirty, some are nine o'clock, or maybe there's an important meeting at eight o'clock and they're a lot more wide awake and present, right? Mm. It's about getting your team to be really present. So for me, when it's in a team setting, standing down is what I really enjoy. So even if you may still have meetings up until 7 p.m., sometimes we work, you know, in global time zones, but five 30 p.m. sharp regardless where i am in the world that's when we do our stand down it's a quick 10 minutes we go do a quick powwow yes what have you done are you feeling okay are we ready to k- crack on tomorrow yeah. let's go
2: i like Amazing. that it's
1: a good finish off yeah that's like a great that. productivity. Yeah. i'm going
2: to use that straight yeah, me, away yeah. i'm going to cl- cl- closing off the day because i'm just so obsessed with the morning mm. the ending of the day the end is i just think a we support. get very
1: much into a routine or, or, or i definitely have gone into a routine where you know we rely so much on different communication tools, and when you have all these different group g- group chats, whether you're using Slack, Teams, Google, whatever, and then you message everyone in your team like, "Great day, everyone. See you all tomorrow." Yeah. Or well, sometimes you don't even. Doesn't say always them. doesn't always feel exactly. right, does it?
0: Yeah, yeah, and also because they have, you know, they're still in meetings, they're talking to different people, mm-hmm. they may run over, and we all know that nobody really finishes off like sharp no, at whatever. the time that they should.
2: I think there is a, a deeper uh, achievement there as well because you're actually giving the opportunity to congratulate everybody for the day as well. If there's any achievements, sometimes it's kind of forgotten at the end of the day and then starts at the beginning of the day and that excitement's died down. Mm. You know, if I've done something really good during the day, it's actually, if you tell me then, that engagement is really high as a team um, and everybody's still kind of present. Whereas in the morning, you might be a bit more relaxed and a bit more shy or not necessarily share that achievement so that's really nice um i I have a couple of questions i know steve has a couple of questions
1: i can jump in with i have loads but i'll let you go first
2: (laughs) yeah so as i said earlier i was looking through you've had an amazing career uh starting off in recruitment and then transitioning into the hr ops field um so when, what skills or experiences from your early days in recruitment have been most valuable in your more later roles as a chief people officer, chief operations officer?
0: Um, it's a full circle, to be honest. I think it's only very recently that I kind of found myself in realization that what I've learned in my early career days was very, very useful to what I'm doing now. Um, I wouldn't I wouldn't stop the buck at What I've learned in recruitment or talent, it's more that a lot of the things I've learned in the corporate world when I was in IBM over the project management, um, I did intensity, uh, intense capacity planning, workforce management. And that has really translated really well through and through my career. So when it comes to recruitment, I would always kind of anchor it back to OD. Um, why are we hiring? What are the reasons we're hiring? How does it go into workforce planning? And so that kind of equipped me to do recruitment the way I thoroughly enjoy. Yeah. And then from there, it kind of translated into, well, from a cultural point of view and a HR point of view, how can we get a lot more compliant? How do we get more out of our workforce? How do we look into pro- productivity and things like that? And then eventually, when I, when, when I got to a point where it's more leadership role, I realized that I could take all of these things and package it into a quite succinct strategy. And so therefore when it comes to a people, challenge and culture strategy, I wanted to make sure that it's a full suite that I'm really considering. So looking at you know not just driving a strategy for the sake of oh we want to be a healthier workforce but what does that actually truly mean it means that when we're hiring you know the the pipeline is healthy we've got the right criteria we're looking at capabilities more and competencies more so than we just need to fill bums on seats Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. so i think all of that has kind of seeped through without me realizing which was you know which is why i say um, a couple of weeks ago, I think I was having a conversation with another um, colleague, and I realized it's kind of like come back to a full circle because now in an operations role, um, having to spearhead some of these, you know, strategies, I find myself really digging back into my IBM days. Yeah, like you know, so this you're
1: drawing upon your previous exactly, experience.
0: exactly being yeah. able to be in an operations role where. I am fully, you know, thinking about, like, being very considerate about what are the company tools that are going to actually drive productivity. Um, you know, is it Jira? Is it Confluence? Like, how do they actually work? So my project management background has really helped me. Yeah. Um, so I kind of feel like, yeah, it's those were probably some of the skills that I have carried without me realizing it so far.
2: Y- you mentioned their organizational design at the mm. beginning. And I think that's a quite like a topic that most recruiters are really interested in, kind of bridging the gap between recruitment and HR. How do they um, talk about organizational design, right? Because a lot of the time recruitment teams are seen as just filling bums on seats. But a lot of the recruiters have really valuable inputs. They just don't get the chance because it's kind of shifted on to maybe the business side or even HR take on the responsibility of organizational design. How did you like bridge that conversation in your early days because that's a really interesting i'm pretty sure most of the audience here has had that thought before
0: Mm, mm, that's a really good um question so i think at the beginning, um, because I was, on one hand, I think I'm quite privileged in the sense that that was already part of my resume. So it was quite easy for me to do that storytelling that I can do org design as well. And I think that was probably one of the things that pivoted me quite nicely and smoothly into HR. So that now becomes my sweet spot Mm -hmm. for Mm -hmm. org design. But on the other hand, I think for anybody who's trying or, or is interested in kind of, you know, digging a bit deeper into OD is Not really get into a point where you define yourself as only talent and limit yourself that way. And this is purely a HR role. It really is not. So I've been in HR organizations and HR teams that they don't do org design. It is still very reactive the way they look at capabilities and competencies. So I don't think, you know, for any talent people who are listening to this, you shouldn't have to limit yourself because it didn't come as a subscription or it's not part of the syllabus that you've learned you know and I think that should be the starting point but equally in great organizations I've been in I found that it's most effective when talent and HR are able to work together in this um and you don't really learn Oc design in... So I've done my CIPD, but I didn't have a HR background. And then I always thought that was my lack of because I didn't go through the three, four years of that grinding and truly learning HR. So my HR experience is really on the job. And then I learned from mentors, I learned from advisors, and I learned from everyone else who've done that for a long time. And then truth be told, the people who have taught me those frameworks are not people who have also done HR. So I think there is something to be said here. Learning by doing. Exactly, exactly. Because most of the time, I'm sure you find yourself in situations where you're driving a talent strategy, you're driving a people strategy, and you find yourself having to customise it based on what the company needs are. And I think that should be the forefront of how we treat what design needs to be. Because it's not just putting people, you know, you you can do a really good job and moving pieces around to make it look prettier, you know, simple things like, oh, we want to flatter organization. So let's spread everyone out. But then you don't think about, well, do my managers have the capabilities to actually yeah. manage five in horizontal and not in verticals? There are reasons for that. So the moment you're not asking these questions, it typically just means you're not doing org design as well as you should, yeah. which is why I feel if talent is able to carve space and for HR on the other hand to not feel defensive about this partnership, I think it'll work magically. At the end of the day, the only people that are reaping that benefit is the company itself.
2: Yeah, I love that. That's amazing. That That is a real problem statement at the moment where talent specialists Mm. we've talked about this before how they're growing in their role and they're transitioning more into focusing on internal mobility and part of that is the organizational design of how, like how do i help an organization grow and i think the key component is there is actually just uh, enabling uh, not seeing talent acquisition as a separate function to Uh, hr or is that is that controversial can i say that hey everyone before we get started don't forget to hit that subscribe button and like and share this video
1: no, it, it's not controversial, but I, I mean, the way that I see it is that in most organisations, 99% of the time, a lot of these opportunities do actually present themselves. It's whether or not you, you're you willing to actually get stuck in mm. and actually want to take on that, or if you just want to brush it under the carpet, right? Like, that's down to you. So yeah. you do. So the opportunities are there, and it's not always on a manual, okay? So you have to be creative, and you've got to be able to kind of... Do your research, speak to people like you've done, speaking to mentors, and then you get involved, and then you, you know, then you actually have something to contribute as well.
2: Yeah, I agree with that. I think that that's that's a really valuable point. There are too many valuable points here, <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, you, you're right. Like if you think about it, most of the people that haven't been presented this opportunity, they could ask. Yeah. Um, it, I guess it, it becomes don't a problem. Us, don't get. <laughs> yeah, I guess it becomes a problem when you're not when you're expecting it.
1: I think a lot of the time, even now, when you're hired into a, into a new role, mm. you you follow the job description too much, and you kind of p- and then you can really fall into that that trap of just being pigeonholed into that job and only that job, and that's actually why a year later most people don't get promoted because mm. they haven't done anything else, they haven't tried to put their foot forward and say actually I want to try this or I want to try that. i've I've been lucky enough to work with teams who have done that but i've also seen people who are you know not pushing themselves in that way but i think also maybe maybe some people are just very comfortable doing that yeah one job
2: having successfully transitioned from recruitment to hr what advice would you give to recruitment professionals who want to do the same move
0: Mm. yeah i love this um First, I think first things first is you may have the will and the readiness. I obviously have seen lots and lots of people, especially, you know, talent professionals taking the real initiative of like doing their CIPD and really like kind of putting it out there that I want to transition, I've done my hard work, it's now time for me to get that opportunity. But obviously opportunities don't arise itself as frequent as we would like it to be. Right. Um, I think it's really, really important for anybody trying to do this um, to find the right environment to do so. First things first, you've w- you want to be able to find an environment or a team that crafts out space for you to learn on the job what you learn in CIPD are frameworks, right? It doesn't mean that almost immediately overnight you can design a performance framework per se. And I think it's really important also for talent professionals to be in the job while they get the opportunity to learn before they kind of branch out immediately and go, I wanna now look for a people partner role, for example. Mm. I think that would be a a much more difficult transition, but being able to kind of harness the opportunities internally Mm. would work magically. At the end of the day, it really is about learning on the job. There's so many things you can learn. Even up until today, I am still learning. I'm learning new frameworks. I'm learning what people are saying. I apply it to my methodology. And you tweak it along the way you go but without the environment or the company I'm in I wouldn't get the chance to practice so I think that yeah. would be the first that's thing a
1: that... yeah
2: that, that's really good advice I think most people in in this kind of transitioning from recruitment to HR they almost look like they know that they want to do it they haven't really thought that far ahead in terms mm-hmm. of like am I in the right
1: space mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But there's that stigmatism because a lot of recruiters that I know that have tried to get into HR, I want to move into people yeah. operations. They think, well, if I haven't got the experience, I can't do it. No one's going to hire me. Uh, it's not, you know. But
2: isn't it like the recruitment? So recruitment teams, TA teams they have a responsibility to hire for the organization. So mm-hmm. they typically will look at job description or craft it with the hiring manager. And part of that that I think it's the responsibility of a TA team to try to enable hiring for potential to some degree. Yeah. By doing that at a recruitment level, it kind of feeds in drip feeds into the rest of the organization that okay, we should start hiring for potential. And then you can almost I'm not saying exclusively, but there is an element where the recruitment team can f- nurture an environment of hiring for potential thus when they want to move they can then be in an environment that hires for potential potentially allowing them Mm. to take that shift and Mm. not worry about that kind of have that psychological safety now maybe you know i'll take a risk i'll I'll jump and uh, go into the hr field
0: yeah, you're right. And and that comes back to, you know, what I was saying earlier about the partnership, right? As much mm-hmm. as there is a lot of willingness and readiness in the talent team, the HR team needs to be fully open to embrace this partnership as well. So... You know, in a lot of times I have seen talent teams, especially in the larger organization, talent teams are quite isolated. They have a very subset of deliverables, which is to fill all the roles and the best quality ever. But how do you actually really define quality when you look at that metrics until people have passed probation? You can't tell me that your time to hire and your cost to hire equals to quality. That really not is, that's quantitative and so you know the moment we learn what true metrics are and how it can win our battles the better it is for us to those that to then win those justifications and i really yeah. think talent team needs to be braver but find the right partnership to do that because equally it's the same you know like i think there's this huge stigma that people who say and i know i, I do this myself as well like how do you get into talent in the first place? Well, I accidentally fall into talent. But hold on a minute. Did (laughs) I not give myself enough credit that I was probably good enough to go into talent to begin with? But on the other hand, HR as a professional, they do have a substandard that is slightly higher that they hold themselves towards as compared to talent. You don't just fall into HR. You come with some credence. You come with some experience. And so you know, for them to be quite defensive about their territory, it's totally fair game. But mm. for talent to not propose themselves in the equal way, mm. then you are always one foot back.
1: Yeah. yeah. It's about finding that balance, isn't it? Where we don't become the blaming box. It's very it's absurd, yeah. Yeah, isn't it, as we know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like
2: equal partners, essentially. I, I love that. Um, in your book, Soul of Startups, you discuss the importance of the human element in startup success. Um how 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 has the human element or how, how is your thinking around workplace and startups? because you're you're kind of an expert now and in, in kind of helping startups kind of form shape and grow uh with your experience as a people officer chief people officer and chief operations officer so what for you is a is a good environment what could how would uh, you advise our audience or managers or leadership who are listening to foster a, a you know a successful environment big question
0: big like, question could yeah, be a book questions yeah 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 i, I
2: always ask yeah, yeah. loaded questions <laughs> <a> universal <laughs> question with a, Take a big breath yeah <laughs>
0: yeah um where do we even start um obviously um in the context of the book they are very confined um test cases in the sense that these are startups that I have been very familiar with, I have um, personally had experience with, and they rise and fall equally in their own unique way. But I think when it comes back to a generalization of what makes a workplace successful, um, I think there are a couple of main things that that pops up in my head. For one is being able to create a psychologically safe Environment, which means you can truly be the form you want to be as yourself. We all know that comes with some sort of limitations, of course, yeah. right? And I think the moment we embrace that and honor that, the better and safer the environment is. It's yeah. almost like I've worked with some companies who are very, very true to their core and very true to who they are, who, who they, they want they to are. be. Yeah. Exactly. And they don't dance around the problem. We may be too aggressive sometimes, but we hold accountability and performance to an incredibly high standard. And the moment you're very honest with that, you know that everything you're doing is anchored towards your principles or your values. And I don't think a lot of companies do that, Hmm. unfortunately. There's a lot of deviation. There's a lot of noise because you're trying to become who you're not. But then at the same time, you're you're too afraid to become who you truly are. There are very little companies, only a handful that I would dare say, that that are very brave and courageous in saying, this is who we are. And if you were to come and join our journey, this is what you need to become. Right. And this is how you would fit into the mold. And that's okay. It's the moment where it becomes a little bit blurry. Yeah. That's where it's not a great environment. Anybody will fail. Anybody can succeed. But actually, an environment that is um, substantial for success, should be very distinct. It should be, you need to have X, Y, Z to be successful from the get go. So I think that would be the two top things that I would say for companies to really emphasize and nail before you try and define what a great high performing culture or a, a great workplace should be for you.
1: Just sticking on that values and culture piece for a second. Do you think that a lot of startups this is my, but in my experience. I wonder if it's the same as you. They have, they lose their focus on who they actually are because they're so focused on the mission of, it could be a SaaS business trying to sell their products, you know, or they could be trying to be focused mm-hmm. on getting funding, you know, and that kind of silences who they really are trying to be.
0: But how are, they mutually, how are they not mutually exclusive, though, is my bigger question. Mm. You are trying to get products out to the market, and you talk about your customers constantly. Who are you really trying to serve, right? There are lots of socially impactful companies out there that are very, very succinct with their mission, their goal, and yes. the products that they're getting out there. Why yeah. can't more companies do that? I what got, makes them different? That's my
1: question, exactly. So the values and the, the mission isn't actually adding up. Yeah. That, and then and then actually that's where we see a lot of companies fail dramatically, unfortunately. Yeah, and they, they could look, have a great product. Correct. But yeah. Yeah. Mm.
0: On another hand, I think maybe the another reason for for that to fail as well, for it to not really align, is that their well probably their mission and their values are a little bit fluffy. Let's be honest, yeah. right? You talk about we embrace radical candor. How many times have we heard that word being thrown around in every single room that we've been in? And transparency is our utmost priority in our culture, but you hear people whisper. Yeah. You don't see you don't see um, metrics being shared across the board. And so that's <laughs> not, that I'm try-
1: not that I'm trying to defend anyone, but I think that sometimes what happens is the pressure gets to the founders or the CEOs because of their investors right so they've got a lot of pressure on them they've got to get you know they've got to get things sold over the line partners whatever you want to call you know whatever they need to basically do they've got to do so that's where you get this grow at all costs sentiment coming into it right so there's a lot of pressure on them but then you know are they then I do wonder and there are organizations out there I've seen but then I do wonder are they getting enough support to really kind of harness that
0: I don't I don't think so. I don't I don't think as part of the research for the book is for me to truly understand the founder's perspective yeah. and their positioning and you're absolutely right. There isn't enough of a support system for them as compared to you. You know, the three of us, right, in our community, and I think that is that is very very important to note. But on the other hand as well, you know, as a founder, you do know that ultimately your responsibility is towards your people, your company and your investors and your product and your customers. And so at what point do you deprioritize your people Mm. is the bigger question. Should that not be one of the things that keeps you up at night is another question. So then it comes back to a full circle, which is, are you the right founder for the company?
2: I have a follow-up question because there's a lot. There was a lot there. I should have been careful. Was that bit too intense? <laughs> yeah, that was a lot. <laughs> no, no, it was good. It was great. Uh, there was a lot of like golden nuggets there. I think for me, one of the things that stood out was um not living by the values, right? And and I wonder whether it's a startup or a midsize or an enterprise. One of the things I've noticed is that holding people accountable for those values is where things go wrong. Mm a lot of companies now find it very difficult to do oh uh, to give accountability make people accountable and also do consequence management if you're going to be whispering in the background how do you like if i had a team now i know how i'd do but let's say there's a team and there's some of them are living by the values and some of them aren't what support is there for managers lead team leads founders to get them to actually Live by the
1: values. Yeah. And we're not talking about a WhatsApp group here. We're <laughs> talking about real support. Like a real yeah, support yeah, system, yeah, yeah, real yeah. yeah a real
0: support system. Yeah. Um, and a real framework in place. You're absolutely right about consequences management. I'm glad you pointed that out. Um, this is where I really feel that there is... There's a whole room of improvement here for HR teams and people teams. And this is where they could really use a lot of help from the operations team if, if they work together really well. Yeah. And as HR quite naturally, and I'm not generalizing here, but most of the time the HR people I've met are not fully equipped to come up with the right metrics that is translatable into something that is quite prominent in the company to know whether or not you're tracking forward or you're tracking backward. And that becomes a starting point. So back to your point around, you know, how do we hold people accountable towards their values is everything that you touch and see can be translated into measurements. Values may not be, but guiding principles can, behaviors can. You know, the moment you put a measurement around it, you can hold people accountable because they know the punishment is there or the reward is there. Mm. Consequences management isn't about, let's come up with a matrix. You know, we've got, you know, people who are not performing well, therefore they go down a PIP route. But really typically is, how do we hold people accountable for values is say, for example, if the value is transparency or just be honest, right? Mm. Honesty is our value it's written on the wall. How that translates into uh, behaviors that you should be um, carrying or how you show up at work with your team, how you lead your team. Are you visible in your information sharing? Are you, Do you have data points? Do you have dashboards? Do you have great and articulative reporting styles and things like that? Those are measurable, yeah. right? So as a C-level, I would like to measure my team managers to do so and my team managers will then float cascade this down back to their teams and every single person is measured that way Mm. then immediately that pillar itself is your value yeah and people who don't embrace that Mm. can be supported because they now know how to be supported if it's arbitrary or completely subjective how do you create a support system how do you teach people to be honest
1: (laughs) yeah it's just something I just, you know, what you said earlier on about finding that right environment, it, even, it really resonates because I think from, an H, from between an HR and a COO or CEO's relationship, that's so critical. Because, you know, if you find the wrong COO or CEO to work with, where they just sort of pigeonhole you as an HR individual, say, you focus on this, I will do that. You're not going to get those measurements that because it's coming from the business. So they've got to it's got to be an absolute marriage mm. yeah you you yeah. mentioned something there, and I think what I was hearing
2: if I was in, in, in looking listening to this podcast, I'd hear what you're doing is valuable, so the metrics, the achievements, the goals, the targets, but it's also important how you do it, and those measurements are your invisible p r there's the uh, stuff that we're gonna be measuring you on like no point being the best recruiter in the world if you piss everybody off along the way so i think that's what i was hearing is the how as well as the what
0: and you can test for it mm, you know yeah. you can you can absolutely test for almost everything almost everything can be measured you know sometimes people go yeah you're absolutely right you're that's a great example you know you can be the best recruiter to fill all roles at the in in, in absolutely the quality that we want but you just can't get along with people and we often say that, oh, you know, we, we can't really performance manage this person because it's culture. That really is not. That's just the way you integrate yourself into a collaborative environment. Are you a good peer? Are you a good collaborator? All of these things can be tweaked and all of these things can be ushered into the right direction. But first things first, we've got to be able to identify and please throw out this whole cultural fit, cultural add or value add. You know, terms out the window mm. because the moment we anchor ourselves into things that are not measurable then we get nowhere Great. Mm. we keep going around in circles
2: so, so on that what advice would you give to someone who's listening thinking okay i work in a team some team members are not following the rules i want to follow the rules what advice would you give them to get aligned with or be in the best position to to succeed would you say the what and the how, or how would you could navigate that?
0: I would. I would first things first, try and get a really clear understanding of the why they're not behaving or performing this way, and then secondly, also help them or educate them in truly understanding the true meaning of what this actually means. What do I expect out of you? What mm. does this value mean? What does this behavior mean? How how can I give you some more examples for you to to perform in a certain way? And I think you know, we can't really take people for granted to think that they would just immediately understand you. I mean, heck, I, I use a lot of words that most people don't even understand and I have to go through layers of explanation when in my head, it should be just one thing. And yeah. that that is true, you know, that's real life. And I think as managers, as leaders, even as peers, we owe it to ourselves and our colleagues to kind of usher each other towards the right direction. And I think that needs to happen more in organizations.
1: Spoken like a true leader.
2: Yeah.
1: <laughs> I've I've followed your career for quite a while now, and I, I one thing I know about you is you're very you're a real ambassador and real passionate about you know women in tech, but specifically you know women in fee- um uh, women in you know um leadership tech. I'm really curious to know about you. You know, I'd like to hear more about your personal journey, actually, um, as a female leader in tech.
2: Can I can yeah. I add as well? Yeah, you're also one of the top twenty
1: women in the UK yes. for software.
2: Yes, you are. So, right? In twenty twenty one. So, thought I'd just add that in
1: there. Well, no, it's, in. But it's, 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 it's a known fact. Yeah. And if you didn't know, you should. Now, now you know. No, so because I love I love reading your posts. I love seeing your posts. Uh, I think you are. You know, you shout about it. And that's the thing. Like most people don't shout about it. But you're not just shouting noise. You're actually shouting facts. And that's really important for people to see. So, yeah. This is why I think it's important for our listeners and, and our viewers as well to hear about you know, your journey. And, yeah, I like it. Yeah. Tell, tell us.
0: Okay. Well, where does that? Um, first of all, I'm really humbled um, that you think about me that way. Um, I think... I thoroughly enjoy doing that. I think part and parcel is because I've always come from a quite empowering environment as I was being brought up. Um, I have a dad and tells me that I can do anything, not in you know in a way that oh you can reach the stars, but he also makes sure he grounds me to understand what I can achieve in my own terms, and I always need to work things in my own terms, and that's something I've learned from a very young age so i don't compare and i don't create unnecessary kind of pressure and anxiety for myself as long as i am fully comfortable and i think because of that growing up i was fairly comfortable in my own skin and so therefore when when i go for things it's mainly based on passion and what i really like so you know going coming out of you know Spending four years in university doing engineering and in mechanical when you're only like the one or two other women in class didn't really scare me off. And I felt like, oh, you can absolutely do this. It's, it's, it's not a gender thing. It's like what I truly enjoy. And I find a lot of joy in then finding my own tribe. So very early on, I already realized this sense of belonging was very important to me. And one thing leads to another Um, when I was, you know, when I landed in fintech, as we all imagine, this was seven years ago, and there was like just not enough women in the industry alone. And I think off the back of that, uh, for the first time in my life, I felt that the women in fintech community is probably one of the strongest one in all industries combined. Because it's so scarce and it's such a small group of people, you've got no choice but to really support each other. So Mm -hmm. then I learned the concept of support. I learned the concept of empowering each other. And every single time along the way, whenever I can, I do my mentoring where I can. Because when I was growing up, I wished when I was 18, there was someone telling me, oh, this is what your career should look like. I didn't have that, nobody was telling me that. I had to go and seek out these things. So whenever I get a chance now, um, I would do that and pay it back. To the community as much as I can, and I think off the back of that, it has actually given me a lot more joy than just the job that I'm doing. So I love the fact that you know. Sometimes, so you don't
1: see it as a job then, really?
0: Yeah, it is. It is easy, it's and great. and it's the thing that it's the thing that really closes my day off, right? It's not the how many goals I have hit. It's it's not the um, how impressive I was in a board meeting. It, it's not like how much revenue we've been able to drive with the team. It's. For me, the pure joy of that is knowing, you know, I've done something here. Um, I've given a small piece back Mm. to whatever that needs to ripple into something larger. And I think, you know, you'll be surprised how common this is now in the community. You know, it is so either in a way that I've manifested it, which I tend to always say, but... It's so common now that there's so more, so much more people who are not shouting about it, who's not talking about it, but genuinely is already doing this in their day to day. I yeah. think we also need to give them credit for for doing that. Otherwise, like I wouldn't be here, for example.
1: Absolutely. So, so sticking on that point, some of my questions, by the way, might be controversial to some listeners. I really don't care. Um, <laughs> I think they're good questions. What would you say are some of the unique challenges that that are faced by women in leadership positions? Mm. And we can say within fintech because that's a good point.
0: Yeah, yeah, of course, in tech alone. Or in tech alone, yeah. There are two challenges um, mainly that I think sometimes I still go through on a day-to-day basis regardless. Um, First things first is there are not enough women in the room and so therefore you don't get enough um, safe sponsors. When I say safe sponsors is there is a certain feeling where you feel like you belong, Uh but there are also very... Uh, there are also times where i feel i absolutely do not fit in no matter what i do no matter how i speak no matter how i carry myself i could completely change my outlook and i would just not be accepted and i think that's very very real and as a as a woman
1: you're not for the first exam- person that said that to me i'm sure yeah.
0: and as a woman especially we are highly cognitive and aware about that situation so there are definitely moments where I would walk into a room and I go immediately. I go, I'm not going to fit in. It's not because I go in without a growth mindset. It's not because I go in with a mindset of this will not work and turn it into a self prophecy. Yeah. But I, you just know that environment where people, you know, your stakeholders, people you're talking to, are not necessarily educated to treat a certain people in a certain way. That comes back to inclusivity and belonging,
1: yeah. right? So Well you've read a, the room, haven't you?
0: Correct. So so that's real and that is yeah. a real challenge.
1: So how
2: do you navigate
1: that?
0: Well, you, you've got to embrace it. I find myself in moments where I know I've got a job to do and yeah. I would put whatever I'm feeling aside and be be quite objective about what I want to achieve, but I'm also hoping to not get more out of it. So for example, I think it's very, it's human tendency to go into a room and go, I will make meaningful connections with you because I like you, I love the conversations we have, and I will always carry this away as I go, right? That fills us with joy. And that's what feeds our soul necessarily. But there are moments where it's yeah, quite- It's a
1: connection, isn't correct. it? Correct, yeah.
0: it's, quite, it's quite transactional. You go yeah. in, there's a job to do, you say a piece, you walk away without feeling, I've just made a best friend in my life. Mm. And that's the way I navigate myself in those environments, knowing what I can take away from and setting up those boundaries from very early on. Yeah. But I do that's say brilliant. that, uh, but I do wanna say that that's a real challenge for sure.
1: Yeah, but it's as you said, it's very real. You know, it's hard to switch off your own emotions and then to focus on the bigger picture, right? It's human nature to do that. It, whether you are actually are male or female, or, you know it doesn't matter really. But it's it's real um, because you know we, we all know what imposter syndrome is like as well, um, which kind of falls into that category. Yeah. So how would you then encourage, based on what you just said? Then how how would you encourage oh, uh, more young women to pursue careers in technology?
0: Yeah. Find yourself a sponsor, find yourself a mentor, find someone who you can soundboard with and just find another person that enjoys the same thing as you and talk to them. We don't know the value of sponsorship until we have them. It's that small little pat on the shoulder that tells you you can.
1: Hmm.
0: It's not yourself. It's not your partner. It's someone else that is a lot further out of your cycle that's actually going to give you that boost and i will 100 percent encourage that
1: yeah getting someone to tell to tell uh, you back yourself like come I've got, on
2: i've got a question and i kind of find myself in this situation now um as you grow in your career and you get to the more senior positions the uh, chief people officer chief you know who are your like do you still find mentors or do you do you how, how do you navigate that because it gets more difficult as you get to the top to find someone who knows what you're in mm. i suspect I'm, i don't know I, maybe i don't i need to find a mentor now well, everyone has different
1: <laughs> skills yeah
0: yeah um it's very important to me being yeah. able to build meaningful connections more so than the job that i'm doing um because it's not on my report card right my report card is basically you know 50% like how much I care about my performance review is 50% of my life. Where What gives me joy is whether or not I'm make, making impactful or material changes everywhere I go, whether in people's lives, connections, relationships, or in the organization. That's pretty much how I anchor my values and my principles. So I carry that with me wherever I go. Um, I have not stopped looking for a mentor. I have not stopped looking for advisors. Every time I meet someone who I'm incredibly excited about, I got to a point where... I am now a lot more courageous in asking for help. For example, that's one of the things that women in leadership really struggle with because you're trying to prove yourself so hard that you don't necessarily feel comfortable going, I actually don't know what I'm doing. Like, do you mind us going into a quick huddle? But now I'm kind of like, not heard that before. Can we jump onto a quick call? Teach me what I need to know. And then I'll crack on, I'll figure it out. But I'm giving you a heads up that I need a bit of help. And that's a different way of saying that. But since then, throughout my career, throughout, you know, the hardship of me having to learn it through the hard way, of course, if you don't ask for help, you can't know everything. And I find myself in a position where I feel quite stuck and I isolate myself. But that's my own doing. Right. So the moment I come into that realization, I never stop asking for help anymore.
2: Good. I have a follow up question on the, you know, speaking of giving back, um, getting advice You've been a board advisor before, right? And a few times, I think, now. Um, What advice would you give to someone who's looking to become a board advisor for the first time? How would they become, how how do they approach that? Because I know there's a lot of people listening thinking, I'd love to do that, I want to grow, I want to be a board advisor, but they don't, they're just waiting for someone to reach out to them as opposed to proactively going and getting that opportunity. What would be your advice there?
0: Yeah, um, definitely be proactive, Um, work that in, it wasn't an easy journey for me to get here, Um, work that into every conversation and every opportunity you see. You know, um, I definitely started off, I've made really great connections now, but I did start off, you know, saying there are a couple of things that I can help you with based on my skill set. More than happy to, you know, jump in, help you out. Here's my number, WhatsApp me whenever we'll jump into a call because you currently either don't have the person to do that for you or you don't have the time to hire, or you don't have the cost to hire, I'll help you out. Mm. And I think that really goes a long way. And then it just becomes this effect of network where people then value you more than you value yourself. And I think that is really important, especially when it comes to networking. Networking Mm. isn't just about, you know, being so intentional where you make a friend, you know, you make a connection only because you want to get a job out of it. For example, if you make it less intentional that way, you'll find more opportunities to weed this kind of conversations into yeah. anything.
1: So, yeah, so you've, you've spent time building up your own personal brand but in a productive way. But I've got
2: another, probably a really important question for a lot of people who who just taken your advice and saying, yeah, I'm going to do that now. Um, more of a personal side, but how would someone quantify the value in terms of monetary? So what would... If I, I'm a listener and I'm saying, okay, great, I'm going to go pursue this. I'm going to try to become a board advisor. What advice would you give them on how they should either charge or how should they calculate what they should? Because I'm sure there is a different value, right? People mm-hmm. have different... Some people might say, oh, I'm going to charge you 100, 200. Some might say equity. Some might say shares or whatever. But what, what what would your advice be there?
0: There's no there's no magic to this. There's no um, straight cut solution to this. You'll learn through your mistakes. Okay. You'll learn to you know, you'll learn to have asked for too much that you don't deserve. You'll learn to have asked for too little that you deserve more. And it's a journey. And every company has very different appetites. So you will start to learn then your own self-value. I have have different values that I give to different companies at the moment. um, And they all work for me as well as they work for the company. So Learn, but also speak to your peers, speak to anybody who's doing pretty much, you know, very similar things. Is it a couple of hours? Is it a couple of hours a month? Or is it more of like sitting on the board? Different kind of things. They have different packages. They may have an idea, but the earlier stage companies are, the less idea they would have. So they will rely on you to propose what is right for them. And then it becomes a negotiation. If they're a lot more mature where they already have a board of advisors that's already been developed, then you kind of immediately know what your space are.
1: Mm. Yeah, that's good. Your board thinking about your board, what you said about the boardroom. Mm. Um, how how can we increase that? How can we increase the representation of female leaders in in the exec teams in the boardrooms?
0: We need. Um, this this is this is also true, and I've only recently learned this in the last few years. Um, you need uh, advocates. Okay. You 100% need advocates. Um, And as women in leadership, we need to advocate for each other as well. The most powerful advocacy is when the person is actually not in the room. Mm. So if you ever hear another person going, actually, you know what? Sophie's doing a great job. I think she can add value here. That's true advocacy that we don't find in a lot of places. Yeah. And that's how we get more seats. And that's how we get more visibility because the credibility is already there. It's just the visibility that we're mi- really missing yeah. because we can't point blank and say all women are working less hard than men are. That's not true. Yeah. It's just the visibility. So the right. more you can get advocacy, the better it is for, for, for
1: all. Yeah. But th- Okay. So on that basis, I'm going to ask this question for all the men out there. Yeah. What role can we play? What role can we play do you think in promoting gender diversity and inclusivity um, in the tech industry?
0: It's first things first, um, it's educating yourself to be really um, aware of the environment that you're creating, whether or not they are safe and um, inclusive enough for another woman to come and join your team, your environment, your space—that okay. is something you need to proactively go and learn. We can't teach you that, right? You can't—you probably can't learn it from home. But you've got to be able to find some way, shape, or form to talk to other peers to understand. Just paint me a picture. How does it look like when you have two, you know, two women in your C-suite? What do you normally talk about? What language do you normally use? And what kind of pushback and challenges do you get? Get a flavor of what the environment is and try to emulate. If you currently don't have say, women in seats at the moment. That's a great start. Secondly, the advocacy piece. Mm -hmm. I have been very fortunate that some of my advocates along my career have been male. So it hasn't always been female. And so clearly there's a big part to play here. If someone sponsors you, someone advocates you, especially from a different gender, I think it's far more powerful as well um, compared to same gender. The reason I say that is because You know, for the fact that when they advocate you, it isn't because of your hair, or your or your dress. It's simply because they truly think that there's some capabilities here and value that they can quantify. Yeah. So that's really important.
2: Yeah. Wow. That's.
1: Yeah.
2: That I the that's there's a lot there that you. I don't think the audience needs to really rewind that, listen to that again. I think there's, there's a lot. lot I there. think there's a
1: lot of stuff in here yeah. that the audience probably needs to rewind, listen to again. But w- one more, just one more question around this, um, because you know I have a lot of, I've worked with a lot of female uh, team members and, and leaders over the years, and you know again there, there are there are people who are kind of trying to step up, but are lacking certain skills. Mm. So f- again, sticking with the kind of the female leadership aspect here um what's what what do you think are some of the key skills and qualities that female leaders need in the tech industry
0: yeah um first first things first i would say is never undermine your own confidence you will always have people telling you that you're either too aggressive too harsh too direct i am a very direct person i've been told through and through but i embrace you're not
1: rude you're direct, but you're not rude. There's a difference. Well, it could be
0: <laughs> said otherwise if you catch me in a bad time. I, and I get it, right? Um, we're all emotional um, you know, beings. But the moment I am able to embrace it as me being confident to be able to speak up my mind and my opinion, and it's never emotional, um, it's completely objective, then you're winning. Yeah. I think it's being able to feel really confident and not misunderstood that as a lack of. Then the second thing I would say for women who are trying to get into leadership roles and trying to kind of break that barrier is find a way to storytell, you know, your presence and create the visibility that is very unique to yourself. Mm. You've got a tone of voice and you shouldn't have to mimic others. um, But in a lot of ways, how do you present yourself? Because... The journey hasn't ended the moment you, you've gotten that promotion. The journey mm. continues. And trust Ooh, it feels me, when like
1: once you've got the promotion and the hard work really starts.
0: Exactly. Right. So this is just a small part of that training ground that you're going through. Yes. How can I be more succinct? How can I not be seen in a certain way? Take on those feedback and learn from it. What are people saying about me? What do I not want to become? What is the version of myself? Now, I know a lot of people tend to, you know, throw this word out and say we need to be authentic leaders. But becoming an authentic leader means being incredibly self-aware. And that means you are able to accept feedback any time of the day without it hurting your soul. So not just going through and say, I want to be honest and this is who I am and I'm just going to be me then you're not flexible. And we all know that every leader, to bring people on a journey, needs to be as flexible as possible.
2: I think that kind of translates into the work as well, like the storytelling part you said there is really important. I had someone I was kind of talking to and giving advice on um, employer branding. And they uh, she felt that her work wasn't valued or it wasn't being properly valued. They just thought, oh well, it's just a nice to have function what um we kind of got into this mode of discussing and i said storytelling i said well, well let's start with the end what does it really matter for the the function uh, hires mm-hmm. you know employer branding does it help hire people us hire people and we did some calculation we found out that actually her function her employee branding campaigns had contributing contributed to 800 hires mm-hmm. specifically because we were able to track the utm Wow. and then in comparison her colleagues mm. who are our peers are doing 400 hires so her small little function has done significantly more but 100 st- more yeah and storytelling <laughs> that to say well uh, she she had a, this kind of fear that okay well you know people should understand the work i do mm. and i was trying to explain to her that sometimes you need to build a story from back to the from the end to the front as opposed to from the like oh you know we built this function up from scratch so i think storytelling is a really important um part of any anybody's career
0: yeah it's an underrated skill to be honest i think we realize that storytelling is important only when you're trying to drive a strategy because you have a lot of roadblocks but typically it's an underrated skill that not a lot of people understand
1: Mm. we're coming up to the end we are yeah. I've really enjoyed this episode. I'm glad. Me too. Really That's a really good question. Really, you know, yeah. I think uh, I'm sure that our listeners uh, and viewers um, are going to really appreciate this. And, uh, and there's a lot of nuggets to be taken away from here. Mm, a, lot, a lot educational of... ones.
2: I'm going to enjoy editing this. So yeah. um, <laughs> before we go, though, we have one final question. I think, Steve, you do the honors because I did it last time. Which one is it? It's the one we ask everybody at the end of the episode, what is the most embarrassing? Uh,
1: yeah, what was your most what's your been your most embarrassing sort of situation in your career?
0: Oh, how many do I <laughs> how do I start? Like do you really think I'm this poised person that's like, you know, made out of porcelain? Like I am so far from that. I <laughs> I trip on my own feet almost like every other day. Um I guess the most embarrassing moment in my career that I felt quite significant um, that I kind of carry with me a little bit. And that gives me a bit of insecurity is I really did not know what HR was. I was very privileged and very lucky in an environment where I had to do it all. And I was one person Um, And I've just came from recruitment and I was doing everything I can to like, you know, do the employer branding, going out and shout, do campaigns, hire, do offers, tick, tick, tick. Wow, great. And then it got to a moment where I'm like, I don't know how to look after these people. I don't know what they need. I could ask these questions, but I also don't have answers. Um, I see people burning out and I don't know how to help them. I, I wasn't equipped with the frameworks at all. And so that was kind of like quite pivotal for me when I had an incredibly supportive um, CEO that told me, you need to t- start talking to other people. Yeah. And for me to also get that empowerment, um, to know that I can reach out to people for help without it being seen as a reflection of me just being poor at my job was important for me. Because mm-hmm. otherwise I would detract from it. I would not ask for help because how would that make me look, then I will continue to keep being in this hamster in a wheel thinking that I've got it all. Yeah. But what I'm really doing is just doing the things that I already know how to do and how mm. far can I go. So I think that was really pivotal for me, but I was embarrassing, yes, um, but it was also really painful for me to know that I've gotten to a point. Yeah, I've got
1: to challenge you on this a little bit. Mm. More empowering. Yeah, I was about to say. No,
0: the empowering it, part is probably the output from it, but yes, I was embarrassed because I wouldn't have questions. It's, an, it's But a, that
1: keeps you grounded knowing that and how and holding on to that embarrassment does keep you kind of re- remembers where so you're coming your, from. your version
2: though right so it's, it's, it's perfectly yeah. acceptable to feel like okay that yeah, was embarrassing. it was
0: hard because i i really i mean i mean i've i've had a i've, I've had a pretty good career um yeah. at the start and i jumped from places to places i've been recognized in the in the workplace and i always thought i've got it all and i wasn't as grounded
1: but then would you say then that, that was your weakness Yeah. Okay. And what did you do? What did you do with that weakness? You turned it into a strength. Yeah. Great example. You
2: know, uh, I I can't remember. Sorry, I
1: I go on about this a lot (laughs) because everyone says I I can't do this and I can't do this and I'm weak at this. And no, no, your weaknesses are your biggest strengths. You just need to know how to turn them around. Hundred percent.
2: And there's a lot of people compare their weaknesses. To others strengths as mm-hmm. well and that's also something to really think about like okay let me not compare my weakness to steve's mm-hmm. strength because steve's strengths are his strengths and my strengths are different yeah. um amazing well thank you so much for joining, for joining us amazing. today this was thank amazing really insightful i think there's a lot of golden nuggets that we got from today's conversation and i'm sure a lot of people will really find it useful
1: listening to it well, yeah thank you sophie and thank you to all of our audience um if you like this episode please like share follow and um subscribe and subscribe always subscribe um and uh, any comments as well we're always open to feedback we love feedback um what you like what you didn't like but hopefully you liked it see you next week
2: thanks thanks for watching you should check out this episode with kieran dodd vp of people at preply We talk about how he pivoted from recruitment to HR in the midst of a Ukraine war.